today's Show Me Institute podcast, Dr. Susan Pendergrass is joined by Dr. Neil McCluskey. Dr. McCluskey is the director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. They discuss forgiving student debt, the current state of higher education, and what's driving tuition inflation in the U.S. So, Neil McCluskey, here we are again talking about a topic that we've already actually even done a podcast on before, but it seems to be one of those things, and I'm just going to throw out there like universal pre-K, that doesn't go away, and we're going to talk about student loan forgiveness, and um, recently I saw a CNN town hall with the president where a woman was very urgent in her pleading that we have to have student loan forgiveness. We have to, like this is number one priority, which, you know, we've talked about this before. Why student loans? Why not car loans? Why not mortgage? You know, why are we just picking this thing? But you have been on uh, the Twitterverse recently talking about a study that came out from not a super partisan group, the Fed, right? Mm -hmm. The New York Fed did an analysis of of this idea of just forgiving student loans. First of all, just tell me why it's generally a bad idea. Sure. So I will say that there are lots of problems with student loans that need to be discussed. But first, looking at just the reality of where we are and what student debt means to most people and who has student debt uh, strongly mitigates against the idea that we need some sort of blanket cancellation. So we've seen people like Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren talk about we should have $50,000 of loan forgiveness for anybody who has student debt. President Biden, when he was running for president, he talked about, well, he would be okay with $10,000 of forgiveness for anybody with debt. But he said it has to be done through a legislative process. Warren and Schumer are saying that the president can unilaterally just say we're forgiving all this federal student debt. So the first thing we need to ask is, well, who's going to benefit from that? Uh, I should actually, there's something even more fundamental, which is, The basic understanding of loans is that somebody takes a loan in order to get something now, sort of borrowing against the future benefits of that thing. And so you are sort of promising that you will repay that loan. And that is first and foremost. That may be considered a moral issue. It could be considered a logistical issue, but whatever it is, the baseline is you borrow money, you're promising to pay it back. And if you don't do that, that sort of breaks down the basic understanding of what a loan is. But that has really important ramifications. Um, and that is you are borrowing, in this case, from taxpayers. So if you have a car loan, you're usually getting a private loan. And that person says, okay, I know I may be taking some risk that this will get repaid. Of course, if it's a car, I can repossess the car. Um, But that person is voluntarily entering into lending you the money. When you're talking about student loans, these are taxpayers who don't actually get a say in any given loan. So they should be repaid. Um, And then The data suggests that it's not really people primarily who are struggling to repay debt who will benefit from especially mass cancellation, which is $50,000 for anybody is huge mass cancellation. Okay, so why is it? Why is it not the people who are struggling? Isn't it because they don't have very much debt? Right. Well, so that's an interesting wrinkle in all this. The first thing to understand is that disproportionately debt is held, student debt, by wealthier people. So the top income quartile 
has about 30 some percent of the debt, 32%, I think it is. That means the wealthiest people will get the most benefit in terms of total dollars if you have mass forgiveness, not the people you want to target. It's actually the case, though, that the people most likely to default, in other words, not repay, not go into forbearance or deferment, but just say, I I give up, are people with the smallest level of debt. And this is why this is a complicated discussion, is that tends to be people who go to college but are not really prepared uh, or able to do college-level work for any number of reasons, who take on some debt and then kind of give up. And so they never get a credential of any type. They never get a degree. And this relatively small amount of debt, so you're talking about $5,000 or so, is a huge burden to them because they haven't increased their earnings. The people you hear about with like $100,000 of debt or $200,000 of debt are major outliers if you look at- Dentists, oftentimes dentists. Yeah, dentists, but also doctors, lawyers, MBAs, People who are going to make a whole lot more money on average, those people are huge outliers and they tend to not have that much trouble repaying their debt. Why? Because if you get a professional degree on average, you earn 3.1 or 3.2, no, 3.1 or 3.2, whatever, three point something million more dollars over your lifetime than someone with just a high school diploma. You can pay off that debt. You take that debt. So you get those future earnings. The people who get to college, they realize college isn't for them. It's not working out. They don't stay three, three and a half years and walk away with $50,000 in debt. That I think tends to happen pretty quickly. And I want to get to policy solutions to get around that issue. But then there's another another consideration of, well, maybe we'll means test this and we'll only forgive $10,000 in student loans for people making up to $75,000. But even that doesn't exactly uh, target where it needs to go, Right. Right. Well, so means testing is better. That's what the Fed analysis found is, look, you're going to better target low income people, people actually struggling with their debt if you keep it low. So $10,000 instead of $50,000, but also if you means test it saying it's going to be from somebody who's earning $75,000 or less, but where that becomes a problematic is in many cases, if you're especially talking about a recent graduate, they will start their career not making a whole lot. If you then forgive that amount, you're ignoring all the future earnings they're going to get from this. So means testing is if you want to target loan forgiveness or cancellation of the people who need it, it's better to means test it. But you're still mainly helping people who are getting a big benefit from the debt they took out. And that's what we always need to remember is you take these loans to greatly increase your future earnings. And we always tend to or people who want mass cancellation tend to ignore that part. And and so even when we talk about, okay, well, the people with debt right now tend to already be in wealthy households. It's that future earning that really matters where those people are going to overwhelmingly be in wealthier right. households. And then and then another aspect is, you know, I hear people with student loan debt who are doing doing OK. I, my kids are in their 30s. They're their friends. Them. They're doing OK. They can handle it. But then if we mass cancel everything in a Pavlovian sense, that kind of sets people up to think maybe I'll take out student loans. 
and maybe once again in the future, they'll get mass canceled, right? Like it kind of opens up that possibility that, you know, no one has really thought was possible, but now it's like, well, it's apparently that is possible. I'll take out all these loans and maybe one day they'll all get canceled. Yeah. Well, so as problematic as mass cancellation is, I am sympathetic to people say, well, I am increasingly living in an economy where I feel like I have to get a degree and degrees cost more and more money. And the reason for that is, well, go back to the 19, you can really go to the 1940s with the GI Bill, but we'll take it to the 60s where they decided we're going to do loans and grants that are very broad. Then you start to see huge increases in college prices huge increases in college going, and then huge increases in employers calling for degrees in which the job itself hasn't changed. So you have all these people who are kind of behind the eight ball. And what we would do with cancellation is say, let's make that even worse, even more free money from, from taxpayers by saying, you know, you'll never really have to repay this. We couldn't make you repay it since we canceled all those all that debt before that encourages people colleges to raise their prices even more people to pay even more to demand more water parks and things like that on college campuses it's well intended but it's often the case it just makes the situation much worse then there's this whole randomness of the whole thing where whatever the date is they pick if they pick january 1st 2023 and you happen to be holding nine thousand nine hundred eighty dollars of student loan debt you win right but if Mm -hmm. you paid it off January 1st, 2022, you like this, like, we're going to pick a date and everyone in like musical chairs who's holding student loan debt, Mm -hmm. they get forgiven. And if you are starting college the next fall and taking it on, you're going to be like, I don't know. I'm my, my older brother got his all forgiven. And now I'm starting is mine going to be forgiven. I mean, it's just to me in terms of good and bad policy, just terrible policy. Well, and it does, you know, sometimes people poo-poo this as a concern, but to me, it's very real. What message are you sending to the people who either were very economical in how they pursued higher education? They may have gone to the community college for two years and then done a program where the next two years were at a four-year college to save money, but maybe they would have preferred to do all four years at a traditional four-year college. Or, you know, what about people who, when they got out of college, were disciplined and said, I don't want this student debt hanging over me. I am going to economize in my life and pay it off. We're sending bad messages to them of, oops, taking responsibility for this cost, for, you know, disciplining yourself so it doesn't cost you as much. You're de facto going to be punished for that because we're going to forgive the debts of pretty much everybody else. Okay, so so I, I want to just revisit for one quick second. I'm not sure people quite understand the point of the student loan industry is what's wrong with the student loan industry, which is to say before it got ramped up to the, the level that it is now where it's really quite easy to get a student loan. There's no credit check. You fill out your FAFSA. You, you know, uh, for graduate school, you can borrow unlimited, but like it's quite easy to get a student loan. And somehow the magic, the, the money magically drops into your student account at your college. And it all seems like really easy to do. I've done it. And um, what that means is like before that happened, I don't have any money. I go to this college and say, I'd like to go, but I don't have any money. And they're like, to, you know, we can't work with you. And now all of a sudden I show up and I'm like, I have $25,000 and like, we'll work with you. And what, you know, 
that will allow us to inflate our tuition, right? Like if everyone shows up with 25,000, then we're going to probably start at 25,000, right? That's, it inflates what colleges are paying because all of a sudden everybody has access to this money. So creating that system is kind of how we got here. And now we've got all these people with student loan debt are very unhappy about it. How do we fix that? How do we put that in reverse? How do we back that off? Yeah, that's where it gets politically difficult. So I think if you look at kind of the spectrum of wonks on higher ed, so you go to the left, the right, the center, most of them actually agree that there's two, the access to student loans is too easy. Uh, There's almost no assessment of somebody's likelihood of uh, completing a program that leads to a decent paying job, sufficiently paying that you can comfortably pay off your debt. Um, They often call it on all sides predatory lending, but it's the federal government does it. And at the time, if you're a politician, anytime you're confronted with this, you may decry the problems with it, but you say, look, I got to be Santa. I can't be the mean one who says, actually, we need to start scaling back the student aid because we know it's ultimately self-defeating, that it leads to higher prices and to credential inflation, which is a big issue we don't talk about as much, that the more credentials, the more bachelor's degrees we put out there, the more employers will demand it for job applicants, even though it doesn't say anything, because for the employer, there's not much cost to do that. And it's become more more of a sort of a mark against you if you don't have a bachelor's degree than something valuable to say, look, I have these extra skills and abilities. There's also, if you look at the literacy data of of people with degrees, we don't have great long-term adult literacy measures, but the two we (laughs) have, they are bad, but the two we have you know, one was from. Oh, the, I mean, the, I meant the scores, the PIAC. Are you talking about the the right adult so literacy scores? Yeah. Originally, the, there was the National Assessment of Adult Literacy, which we yeah. did in 1992 and 2003. Then the PIAC, which is strange because it's like 2014, 17 or something. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember the other, but we, they both have an, a beginning and an end. So at least you have two longitudinal chunks you can look at. And in both cases, you see literacy among degree holders, including advanced degree holders going down, which suggests we're producing more pieces of paper and each one on average represents less learning. And so we had this credential inflation problem too, which is huge. So we've sort of put everybody uh, kind of, you know, uh, behind the eight ball on that. But for politicians, it's a very short time frame. When is my next reelection? And you don't want to be the person who says, I'm not going to give money to people to do something that sounds good, which is get education. The But wonks who do spend a lot of time on this generally agree we need to scale it back. And the way to start is something like you mentioned grad plus, where you can take out any amount of money. But if you're going to grad school and you're going to study something of value, a private lender would give you, would work with you. Um, you don't need the government to do it. We should get rid of grad plus and parent plus. Oh yeah. Basically let's parents take out any amount of loans that their kids can't. And what we typically or often see is parents get saddled with debt. They can't pay off. And so we can start, I think by targeting at least the plus program, glad grad and parent, which people across at least, again, the wonk spectrum recognize are bad and start to scale back these programs. And that's what has to happen 
is we've got to reduce the subsidies, not increase them. Yeah, I mean, I've seen teachers interviewed and they're like, I make $38,000 a year and I have $150,000 in student loan debt. It's like, what? first of all, you shouldn't have been able to get that money for that. That I mean, no assessment of what your future earnings were going to be. They would loan mm-hmm. them anything. And I don't know why they had, but I've definitely heard uh, that that talk. And it's like, you should have thought, you know, like, I guess if it's that easy to get, people just take it. Yeah. It, see, uh, the idea of going to a private lender, if you say that, people often look at you like, oh, you're a horrible person who doesn't want to help anyone. And you know that these private lenders, they just care about making profits. And I don't actually think that's the case for private lenders generally, but let's say it is. That is so beneficial to the people who would want to borrow money because that profit-seeking lender would look at the person and say, well, what are the chances of your being able to repay with interest what I'm about to lend you? And they would do an objective assessment of a potential borrower and then give that borrower useful information saying, I'm looking at all the indicators of whether or not you are going to enter a program that you can succeed at and earn a sufficient amount of money to repay this loan. And they would say no to a lot of people. The federal government just says yes all the time because that, you know, maybe that seems like you care a lot, but then they don't care about the future ramifications, including saddling people with debt they can't repay. I don't see how somebody like Elizabeth Warren, whose background is in banking, can say it with a straight face. I mean, I just don't see how this idea of forgiving $50,000 in student loans to everybody. I just don't see how anyone thinks that's a good idea. But to me, you know, when, when I, I guess when I say it's a bad idea, people with student loans are like, oh, that's not very nice. But it's like, do that for Carla. I don't know. I just, to me, it, it just kind of amazes me. But let's talk about some other things. Income-based repayment plans. We could do that, right? Yes, well, we have those. Um, Here's another problem with federal student aid. And this is why, again, I'm sympathetic to people who are unhappy about their debt is federal programs have actually led to lots of bad things in higher education. The reality is they're not so bad that most people can't repay their debt. And if they don't repay their debt, they hurt taxpayers. But there are some real problems. So The federal government actually has multiple income-driven repayment options. A lot of people have heard of public service loan forgiveness, but they have others. Uh, But they they keep adding new ones. And they, of course, they all have acronyms. And nobody can keep them straight, nor can they keep straight the numerous requirements that are different for each of them. So you have something called payee, you have repayee, you have PSLF, and some of them you can get for what are called federal direct loans, but not the old federal FEL program. Some you have to be, you know, you have to be in a job like PSLF. One of their big problems is only some jobs qualified, even nonprofit jobs. Right to get the debt. And so we have lots of programs to help people. Income-driven repayment is supposed to be, if you don't earn enough to comfortably repay, you don't have to repay. And in 20 or 25 years, depending on the program, you can get your remainder forgiven. But it's so complex. Borrowers don't understand it. The department loan servicers don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> servicers don't understand right. it. The department doesn't understand it. Politicians don't understand it. They just the politicians just know somebody's unhappy, so I should probably cater to them in some way. And they right. don't know what it is they've created. What about income share agreements? Yeah, so income share agreements. Uh, 
they're sort of similar to income-driven repayment. Income-driven repayment, though, is technically a loan. An income share agreement is technically you are saying to somebody who's going to invest in you. So rather than saying they give you a loan, they're investing in you, in your accumulation of human capital. They give you a certain amount of money, and then the promise is you will pay some share of your income for some amount of time. It could be you know, 5% of your income for 10 years, 10% for 20 years, you know, it's whatever you would work out with the, the, the investor. Um, and these things do exist. So Purdue University famously has an income share agreement program. There are various uh, sort of generally small lenders or investor uh, organizations that will run income share agreements. The problem they run into is people hear them what they are and immediately say, well, isn't that slavery? Um, because you are <laughs> indentured servitude. Well, I would say that, but people actually say that the loans are indentured servitude too. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, but, but the, in fact, I think uh, Mitch Daniels said that the way before income share agreements that people paid for college was indentured servitude and income share agreements were going to fix the indentured servitude with an investment. But a lot of people say, okay, that sounds like slavery because you now own somebody's work. But it's really, in the end, income-driven repayment and income share agreements are both aimed at the same thing, which is making sure what you owe is not greater than what you can repay at the time. So you're paying a share of your income. Right. And then when your income's low, that's a small amount. When it's big, it's a big amount. Right. Um, and, but it's hard income share agreements that people think they're slavery. And it's also hard to <laughs> confirm what someone's income is often. And so there are problems with that. And there's the regulatory environment is unclear when it comes to income share agreements. What about our mutual colleague, David Armour? Uh, Dr. David Armour suggested to me once that a student would have to uh, attend their first semester, get a 3.0 or a B average before they could get a student loan. Yeah, um, I was doing more researching into the history of student loans. Um, and that's actually, I believe, kind of how they started a long time ago. Um, I. I'd say, don't quote me, but it's a podcast. So people, I guess, can <laughs> You're go with it. But if I recall, uh, there's a great book actually that's new. Uh, and now I'm forgetting the name of it by Josh Mitchell at the Wall Street Journal. Um, uh, and it's about student loans. People have to Google it uh, because I can't remember what it is. But he goes into all this history. And the University of Minnesota, I guess, and some others were very early in the 50s or so giving student loans. Would it be the debt trap? The debt trap. There you go. Um, and they, I believe, these early loans said, look, we. one of the things they did to make sure the loans would be solvent would be wait until someone had completed a first semester or a first year before they lent to them. It was kind of well known that the biggest risk to lend to was freshmen because you didn't know whether they'd finish. And so that, those sorts of ideas are, they're not my ideal, because I, I think we need to eliminate this forcing taxpayers to subsidize college. You would but get rid are, of the federal student loan program. I would. I would slowly phase them out. 
you can't just get rid of them tomorrow because people do a lot of long-term planning for how they'll pay for okay. colleges and colleges do a lot of long-term planning for the revenue they think they're going to get. Ultimately, I don't think we should have federal student loans for constitutional reasons, but also because we see all the really awful unintended consequences that go with forcing people to subsidize consumption of higher ed, just like we see with lots of subsidies. Um, but these are, I think, proposals like that are ways to move in the right direction that are politically feasible. There's also a discussion about skin in the game, which I, I haven't always loved. This is the idea that a school where you know, they hit some threshold of students defaulting, say it's 10%, then the school has to start picking up some share of those defaults. Could be 10% of your students default or grads default, then you have to pay 50% of the defaulted amount. Uh, I don't love that because it tends to distract from the reality, which is schools are responding to the incentives that the government has created with these massive subsidies. That said, the schools kind of get off scot-free on all this. If the if the students don't finish, well, they're still getting their money. That's right. So something like that may be an, kind of an interim way to start to rein in the problem is make the schools responsible for for bad outcomes. And then they're going to be more uh, inclined to vet who it is that they enroll. So haven't most loan student loan holders had their payments frozen now for three years? Yeah, well, so two, two years. years. So two years. yeah, it feels like COVID has been with us for like 10 years now. Yeah, but forever. Yeah. In March 2020, when we were entering massive lockdowns, uh, the Trump administration, I think reasonably said, look, we're basically shutting down the economy. Yeah. The federal government is basically the student lender. If these were private lenders, you'd say, okay, they'll come up with all sorts of different arrangements. Right. And I, you don't generally like the federal government saying, well, we're just going to suspend repayment. But since it was the, basically the only lender you said, okay, it seems reasonable to say we will freeze repayment because government, including the federal government to some extent, was locking down the economy. Yeah. And what happened was, so he said, we're going to suspend these. And then the first, um, I think it was the CARES Act, I lose track of the acronyms, but the first COVID Relief Act put that into law that said, okay, we're going to suspend basically freeze repayment um, for, I think it was six months or something. Right. The problem has been instead of restarting it, even as the economy has revved right back up, basically by the first quarter of 2021, it had totally rebounded. We see the Trump administration and then the Biden administration keep extending these freezes right. by executive action and so it's been basically two years, well, more than two years uh, since anybody has had to repay a federal loan. And so now it's going to feel like a new bill for you, right? Rather than it was a bill that got put on hold for a little bit. After two years, it starts to feel like you've got this new bill, your student loan bill that you haven't had. Similarly to like the child, uh, $300 a month per child, child tax credit being distributed. Like when that stops getting distributed, it feels like money went away. Like the perception as a student loan holder is, I've got this new thing I have to start paying for again, mm -hmm. because I've been 
not budgeting for it for, you know, for 24 months. And now I have to start budgeting for it again. Now it's just going to be hard to read. The longer we do that, the harder it's going to be to restart. Yeah. So there's right. First, there's the borrower perspective. And it's kind of could be kind of like if we cancel loans in microcosm of we keep telling people, oh, well, in a few months, you're going to have to repay. But after a while, you start saying, I don't believe you're actually going to do that. And it doesn't make sense for me to budget like you're going to. Um, But we do always tell people, hey, look, in three months now, because these have been three months or six months extension, three months, we are going to start to ask you to repay. And so people should be budgeting that way. But if we keep saying no, they won't. And what also turns out to be a big problem, and I'm not a loan servicer, but I've talked to some loan servicers, is I didn't realize until I talked to them, they have a problem of they've got to ramp up their call centers and things right. when they're told that there's going to be repayment or that everybody's going to return to repayment because it didn't make sense for them to keep all these people on the payroll when they weren't sure. repaying. And so they have to ramp up and get things ready to do it. And then when they're told they're not going to do it, they've got to ramp back down. And so it strikes me that the even bigger problem of these continuing to suddenly extend a freeze is yes, the borrowers are not prepared for it, but the servicers who actually have to work with them, they would like to be prepared for it, but they can't be because they Um, keep going through this cycle of you're going to, you're going to get them. You're going to start recovering these. Nope, you're not. So don't hire those people you're going to hire, go back into dormancy for a month or two, then start ramping up again. And so it's, it's hard to. And restart. has the interest been uh, suspended the whole time? Yes. Yeah, so this is one of the things that people don't know a whole lot about because student lending is incredibly complex, thanks to the mm-hmm. federal government. Yeah. Um, so as they have frozen these, they have been in a state of, I believe they're called for. Well, they should be deferment. And there's a difference between how they handle forbearance and deferment, but it depends on what program you're in. But it's been interest, zero interest charging. And so the federal government has lost over $100 billion that they're not going to get back because people aren't paying this interest. And what's important is if you're in an income-driven repayment plan that says you have to make a, like PSLF says 120 on-time repayments. So basically 10 years of on-time repayments. These last 24 repayments, if we want to round to two years of freezes, they count toward that. So that's also principal that won't be repaid in the end on a lot of these loans. So this is actually a good deal for a lot of the people who have loans. It's not just a freeze. They're actually gaining from it. What about, uh, are any of them tied to market market rates? So the they used to set federal student loans by the Congress would say, okay, well, for the next five years, here's this, what the student loan rate will be. But if you go back to 2009, when mass, major student loan reform occurred with the Affordable Care Act. It was essentially appended to the Affordable Care Act so that they could get a score for what the Affordable Care Act would cost that was lower because they said we'll mm. make a lot of profit off of how we change lending. Mm. Um, as part of that, they pegged interest rates 
to the 10-year treasury rate, I think it was for June of every year. So now student debt or student loan rates are pegged to that treasury bill rate. And it's if you have a subsidized loan, I think it's like that rate plus 1.2% or something like that. I don't remember the exact well, That's going to be a shock to some folks, right? Well, so yes, in the next year, well, actually starting in June, next the week. rates will go from, they've been around, I think, 3.53% to like, they're going up to 4.9%. I can't remember yeah. the exact numbers, somewhere in that range. And so, yeah, people will say, oh, that's a big shock. But of course, we have inflation and Doesn't inflation it. gets calculated in that. But I think it's better that these rates be pegged to the cost of borrowing money for the government than just Congress decides this seems like a good rate. And what that used think- to really make people mad. What do you think is the likelihood that the government's going to get out of the student loan business? They got out of the mortgage business, right? Basically, Sally Mae, Fannie Mae. Yeah, you know, I should follow follow the mortgage stuff more. I think Fannie Mae may still be around. But oh, okay. I'm not sure. Um, well, what do you think the chances are that we'll get out of the federal? I mean, obviously, I, I don't normally think that if you want something done well, you should give it to the government to do, right? So I don't see why we're in this business, the government <clears throat> putting taxpayers mm-hmm. into the business of originating student loans. But what do you think is the likelihood that they'll get out of it and go back to private loans only? Well, I mean, the optimist in me and the person who wants to feel like his job's not totally worthless, although I have K through 12 <laughs> education too, so I can take heart in that sometimes. Um, but uh, the optimist in me said, well, sure, it could happen. Yeah. Um, but it is a tough slog, a tough slog for the usual reasons with government programs, which is a politician looks and feels more like they care, quote unquote, care about people when they're giving them money. Right. And we tend to fixate on what is seen. You know, I see somebody who says his college bill is too high. We give the money and that fixes it. And we don't see all the unintended consequences that go with that. And so I am pessimistic because that is a fundamental political problem. I'm optimistic in that a lot of people now seem to recognize, actually, that federal student aid has had these perverse effects. Um, And I think that many would want to get rid of those programs. The problem is what they would want to replace them with is free college, where the taxpayers just fund everything up front and nobody gets charged anything, which I think is even worse. But I think think, I think anecdotally, Gen Z and younger, they're more reluctant to go into debt in the way that maybe Gen X and millennials were. Yeah, well, so then that's two, actually. I was only going to say one thing that encourages me, but I'll say two things that encourage okay. me. That keep us from this free college, which is it has way worse problems than, yeah. than the yeah. current system. One, like I said, among kind of the wonk types, there is agreement that things like plus loans should go away. And that would be a big improvement. And then the federal government has these weird designations of some loans are called subsidized and some are called unsubsidized. They are actually both subsidized because the federal government's like, we're going to give you these loans no matter what. Right. But unsubsidized, the federal government doesn't pay your interest while you're in school or essentially doesn't charge you interest since they're the only lender now. And they, um, and for unsubsidized, there's no grace period of repayment after you graduate. Um, 
And I think people are starting to realize, you know, we shouldn't have something called these unsubsidized loans that are for people who really don't need help. That's and right. so I think that that we have at least agreement about people who study this, that some of these loans should go away. And then there has been a big decrease in college attendance and in borrowing on a per borrower basis. And so we do see kind of a market response of people saying, it's not worth paying all this and taking on all this debt to go to college. And that's a good sign too, is that people do have some agency and they decided this is not worth it. And I also have anecdotally heard that universities, well, I, I think University of Missouri, who was a bad offender in uh, like one of the textbook examples of building this thing that called the Tiger Grotto, which is this crazy water park. And so they took a lot of heat for the Tiger Grotto. But they also then opened up a sort of a back to basics dorm style that would be like a lot of uh, universities, as you know, was going to these fancy dorms. Everyone had granite counters in their own room and like very, very fancy dorms. And it was really expensive. Um, my son, when you went to University of Alabama, lived in one of those dorms, very expensive, had their own room and all of that. And then they are offering up this option of the low cost, more basic dorm room like I had, which was teeny tiny. And you shared it with somebody in the bathroom was down the hall. Uh, for less money and, pe and people, uh, students love it. Like mm -hmm. an opportunity to spend less money, you know, really appeals to students now in a way that I, you know, the more money and the fancier stuff used to appeal to students. So I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Yeah, I do. I used to love to talk about the Tiger Grotto because it was so excessive. It's still excessive. I believe it still exists. I remember it seeing, still exists. Yeah. yeah. I remember seeing a picture of there were like, undergrads lounging by a pool while someone in a Hawaiian shirt was bringing them fruit smoothies. And I that's thought, right. well, you know, that's not like the old monastic cell that that's was the right. original college sort of <laughs> living. Um, and then Missouri was, I, I felt like there might've been an arms race because Southwest Missouri state, which I think has changed their name since I saw it, they yeah. were also listed as, Hey, they've got a great pool or they've got a good water park yeah. center. And then there was might've been one other public university there that had it. But we did see this kind of arms race on, on these amenities that I do think people finally said, you know, it's not, it's not worth the cost to pay all these. And we look at tuition, but those room board and fee costs had gone up even faster than tuition. Um, and so there is, I think, reason to be somewhat encouraged that people have finally said enough. And there's a there was a, the college board tracks aid and cost, mm -hmm. but there is a, I, I reproduced this in a blog post recently. They have a chart that I think was over 20 years or so that showed the share of student aid that came from grants, loans, and other sources. Other was yeah. always about 10%, but you saw loans and grants were both about 45% at the beginning of it. The grant or the loans might have gone a little above the grants at the beginning, but now grants are way above loans. It's like grants are 60 some percent, uh, the loans maybe 30 some percent, something like that. Now, a lot of that is tuition discounting, where the school just like, we're not going to charge you what the sticker price is, which That's is what right. we do with lots of people. Um, but it did show that. Again, a lot of the indicators are that loans and debt are becoming less popular and less used to pay for college. And that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a great thing. Uh, also, there's programs like Arizona State where 
they're making it easier to take your intro courses online to see if it's even for you and you don't pay until you pass the class and you decide that you're going to actually go full-time Purdue global. I mean, I think with the pandemic, for sure, we're seeing innovation higher ed, because as you said, enrollments dropped a lot. So um, I think universities are looking for ways to innovate, to bring students back. And the just like raise tuition by 2% every year, hopefully is in the rear view mirror, but that's where we were for a while. So that tuition got way outside of inflation. Mm -hmm. um, and then we got into the student loan thing. Well, always nice to talk to you. I guess this will probably not go away anytime soon. So maybe we'll talk about it again, but, um, but hopefully uh, the, I mean, the president will at least hold the line and not do the 50,000 for everybody. Well, I mean, that seems to be the way that it's going. The president keeps kicking the can down the road, not only on ending the freeze, but on making any sort of definitive pronouncement about what he'll do. And I think it's because he recognizes that his there's a large enough group of his party that wants $50,000 that he can't just outright come out and say, I'm not going to do that. But I think he recognizes that most people would think that's outrageous. Um, but he doesn't want to commit to something much lower. And I think he's happy to just kind of muddle through it and, and hope maybe that it just gets, goes away or gets drowned out by other issues. Right, well, well, we'll look to you to inform us going forward. So thank you so much, Neil. It's always nice to talk to you and people can find you at Cato Institute. Sure. Cato. You can just go to www.cato.org and you can find me or you can Google my name, you know, you lots of ways stuff. to discover it. Yeah. And thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care.